Hello, my name is John O'Connell, and welcome to AMX Fika Leadership Podcast. So over these podcasts, I'll be speaking to some inspirational and innovative data and analytic contributors from across industry and the health and care sectors. I'll be asking each of them to share with us some of the exciting work they have underway, which is helping to shape the health and care analytics space, as well as asking some of them their motivational insights into their career paths to date. So why FICA? FICA is a social phenomenon in Sweden, I thought I'd borrow. It's a legitimate reason to set aside some really quality time to catch up with friends, family and colleagues over a coffee and a cake. So joining myself today is Paul Perotti, uh, EY Island Partner for Data and Analytics. And Paul works to help transform customer engagement and operational processes through embedding insights. Uh, and Paul also brings 25 years of experience in applying data-led analytical insights to improve business performance and customer outcomes. Paul is also a partner at EY's Island Data and Analytics Emerging Technology Practice, which specializes in analytical strategy and innovation. And this includes uh, defining and delivering very large-scale analytics programs of work and business case covering things like, for example, revenue growth, digital transformation, supply chain, and manufacturing, also coupled with uh, looking into fraud and non-compliance credit management. And I believe, Paul, before joining EY, Paul was a managing director of a multinational technology consultancy organization, where he had various roles, including their uh, heading up their analytics and AI work for across all sectors in Ireland, as well as leading uh, various health and life science uh, innovations and programs of work for governance and analytical teams. So very busy chap and has worked across Europe as well. So Paul, welcome. It's delighted to have you on FICA. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thanks, John, for the opportunity. Hi, everyone. Uh, and Paul, also, I believe you've got a very impressive uh, is it a BSc in mathematics and a, uh, an MSc, is that right? In industrial so, mathematics from Strathclyde. So I'll let people decide whether it's impressive after the yeah. discussion. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, like um, 1995, I finished my maths degree um, and industrial mathematics was really the, the name at the time for the masters that were coming through, which I suppose ultimately became data science. Um, but it was that it was the application of mathematics to business and industry problems. So my the PhD I didn't do that started as my thesis was um, automating and modeling helicopter um, movements through the use of mechanical mathematics. Um, but then what? I decided to get a job instead and not do the PhD, I'm afraid, because I was fed up being skinned. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Paul, um, most important question, obviously, welcome to FICA. And FICA is coffee and a cake with friends. Um, What's your preference for you a tea or coffee person, and what would be your favourite cake for that as well? I'm seeing I'm reinforcing stereotypes in the video that I've got my can of iron brew, given that I am in Scotland just now. But I would usually have tea, and then actually the fact that I'm in Scotland as well, and you can't get these in Ireland. That would be an empire biscuit. I always wondered why you couldn't get an empire biscuit in Ireland until you actually take a step back and go, oh yeah, of course you can. 800 years of occupation and all of those things. So <laughs> I'm delighted to have an empire biscuit while we're doing this in the UK. And I'll probably take some of them back in my bag to the kids tomorrow night as well. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, thanks for sharing that with us. So, Paul, what we, what we always try and do is, you know, uh, it's great to have you on board and, and just sort of share with our listeners. You've had a, a fascinating, when we spoke, a career journey and it's always kind of serendipity comes in and you get great opportunities. So, would you be able to share with us, sort of, our listeners, your career journey today and some of the sort of 
insights and, and valuable lessons you've picked up on, along the way for especially for people who are starting out in analytics be really keen to hear your, your journey yeah yeah look happy to and, and maybe there's a few pivots that's worth just talking about mm. so, so genuinely at the end of my masters didn't know what to do <clears> and got a job in barclays buying credit scoring um so predictive modeling to automate lending decisions um, very quickly after that joined pa consulting's graduate program and at the time, that was the right decision for me was to go back to sort of get that graduate training in consulting and that worked very well. And I think as I mentioned before, I, um, probably the core, the the client project that best suited me and best describes what I think I'm good at there was I spent nine months in NM Rothschilds. And effectively, yeah. NM Rothschilds had a bunch of wonderfully clever professors from Cambridge University and then a bunch of wonderfully able um, I hate to generalise, but it was true. Incredibly bright Essex white boy traders, and I speak West Ham and Star Trek, and I translated for yep. nine months. And effectively, that bridging role between the deep analytics geeks and also the business people has kind of yep. been the, the the example of what I've done throughout my career. I was I was never a first in my degree. I was always a good two one. Um, but I do think I'm good at making those connections and understanding how mathematics and data science can actually enable solving business problems. And I've I've enjoyed a, a long career that thereafter doing that across a variety of other areas. And then maybe um, 15, 17 years ago, I moved to Ireland. 15 mm -hmm. years ago, the health service came out with a question about hospital beds. Um, I didn't realise how political it was at the time, so I naively saw it as a maths problem and worked with a team there who had all healthcare experience and we won the bid um, and I led my first healthcare project and actually found myself doing effectively what was Ireland's health strategy 15 years ago because um, you can only answer what capacity you need when you know what you're going to do in the, the beds or in the whatever. Um, and found actually loved working in healthcare and, and spent a lot of my subsequent career working in health and life sciences. I think the thing for me is, by definition, health and life sciences are numerical. You know, the only reason you do one procedure and not another, the only reason you take one pill and not another is because some statistician of some form has proven it. And so actually, although I also enjoy the variety that I work in a lot of sectors, I think I've worked probably in most sectors by this point, including sport. Um, but actually, I've always enjoyed coming back to health and life sciences and always feel as if, um, you know, there's a, a real opportunity to transform how we deliver both of those, the services in those sectors through the use of data and insight. Brilliant. And it, yeah, as you go back to numerical, it's always evidence-based, it's applying that evidence base into actual real-world examples. But no, really good point as well, that the bridging role, love the idea of that. And uh, I suppose what you're saying is the grounding of the of the kind of mathematics behind it, what it means in, in practical terms. Yeah, totally. It's always funny with, because um, like, don't get me wrong, I am more technical than I pretend to be sometimes. And I have caught a few jokers out in my, my times when they're pretending. But at the same time, and I think... So, so my take would be I was always going to move away from being super technical, but I wouldn't be able to do my job without understanding the technical requirement. I, I understand the scale of effort required to build different types of models. I understand yeah. the situation where uh, some kind of predictive model will be more or less suitable than some kind of discrete event simulation. Uh, you know, I understand that. I've not got my hands dirty in a good few years. 
Um, but I do think, and it's interesting, I suppose, as this is a podcast for analytical people, um, lots of people want to stay technical their entire lives. I didn't. It's probably not. It was never where my strength was. But actually, it was really important to me to have that grounding that I yeah. know. And I, and I, and I actually, I, my general view is if I if the technical solution we're coming up with, I'm not comfortable with, then the client's never going to see it until I am comfortable with it. And I, I hopefully yeah. have enough confidence in my own technical ability to challenge people who are, to be honest, technically more strong than me. But they need the requirement to convince me that approach B is better than approach A and for these reasons. And if I'm not convinced, I hate to tell you, but we're not doing that. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Great, isn't it? It's having that firm base to stand upon. Yeah. Totally, totally. And it's good learning for them as well. We all have to convince other people that our methodology works. And look, I'm sure you know this yeah. as well, John. Yeah. In healthcare especially, there's a decent chance you're going to be explaining it to some very senior civil servants yeah. or, you know, I'm, I think we're all aware in COVID times that there's probably going to be a, a few public inquiry of some sorts where you have to provide evidence to just to just. I, so I need to be comfortable that those decisions yeah. are left, and if if that takes more discussion, yep. then then that's where we are, you know. Yeah, and also dealing with, dealing with clinicians because all of their their work there is all evidence based, has to be you know, statistically relevant. So you get you get your challenge back an awful lot of times from clinicians to to prove your case. Totally, and it's interesting. Like, don't get me wrong, I, the challenge sometimes in working in healthcare is clinicians. They are. Yeah often the brightest of the bright when it came to their year, they are competitive um, and they are very challenging. I, I think, and and to be honest, sometimes that has caused problems with, you know, historically with innovation not sticking arguably as quickly as it should. However, mm -hmm. my experience has also been they are absolutely patient-led that if you can show them particular pathways, particular approaches that are actually to the benefit of clinical treatment, then 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 they will adopt very, very quickly. But they need time and they need, you know, they do need that. They do expect to get under the skin, so to speak, of the actual solution and making sure that they are comfortable with how, you know, how these things are working. And, and if you can do that with them, they'll get on board. They'll, they'll make the solution better always because clinicians bring in a, a practical understanding. Um, clearly, so do, so do a, a variety of health professionals in that space. But also, you need them to trust and use the system. And, yeah. and I must admit, for so many, they think the projects that go wrong in healthcare, uh, that adoption phase is often the one that's the, the primary reason for the failure. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? And um, Paul, just just going back to some of the early conversations we had, we know there's obviously you as well as ourselves have seen a huge expanse in the work that's been gone, uh, taken up uh, to support obviously the COVID efforts. What what are you kind of seeing across other countries apart from the UK of innovative use of sort of data analytics that's kind of surprised you that we could probably sort of uh, learn upon? Yeah, look at I think across the board, I think um, you see it's been interesting to watch, you know. You know, and I have been doing some work helping the Irish government around um, COVID and EY is doing some wider work around um, sort of data factory to enable some of the health information. You also look at some of the countries that are doing best 
in addressing COVID, and okay, it varies over time, but so many of them, particularly over in Asia, learn from previous, you know, disease outbreaks like this, that that they have put data analytics at the centre of how they manage, reduce, identify, address outbreaks. Uh, And there's a lot of learning for us on how they've done that. But let's be honest, like I'm sure you're the same. I'm having epidemiological type conversations with people I never thought would would want to have those conversations. And I, I think more than ever over the last 17 months, 18 months, healthcare decisioning has been data-led and there is an innate understanding by the population around where different geographies are and how things are performing and where we are in whatever wave. Um, and certainly health leaders that I've been working with are, are more informed today than they've ever been. Um, and that might be just actually understanding outbreaks and the importance that they're having. It might be the impact on restrictions. It might be some of the work that the health service in Ireland have done with their support that's publicly available so I can talk about it around discrete event simulation to do capacity planning at a national level. Um, And often for a lot of that type of work, it was almost a one-off project you did every five years. They've realised the need to embed some of these things as a daily operational tool. And I think that's the thing for me is, you know, there is no question, and look, I'm privileged to talk to this audience and thank them as somebody with a lot of people I love in the UK that have been helped by the NHS and the services that have been provided during this once every hundred year event. We aren't also going to turn this off. Hopefully we turn it off soon with the pandemic. Hopefully we are, this is the final wave of this level of severity, but but I won't predict it because let's face it, this disease has made fools of all of us many times in the past. So, but hopefully we are in in a different place. We'll see. And if we are, mm-hmm. let's hope we then adopt that for diabetes. Let's hope we adopt that approach for other, you know, for other conditions yeah. and for other situations. And even it's been interesting in some of the conversations I'm having in Ireland around actually poverty and trying to understand how analytics yeah. can enable a new approach to a more integrated healthcare plus human services plus education, you know, and and really yeah. thinking about an integrated you know, government, public sector delivery in just a new way. And I, and I think that's the thing for me. Like we're, let's face it, we're all going to be very tired when this finishes. Um, but the, but it's, it's shown the power of data and insights to drive better health outcomes. You know, it's shown the power of innovation to, let's face it, it's unbelievable. When we take a step back, you know, the, we all know this, the, the, where the vaccines <clears throat> have gone and all of that. There's a real opportunity for us at the end of this to take a step back and go, right, brilliant. How do we now address sustainability? How do we now address chronic disease? How do we now address, you know, the sort of inequalities that we have in our society as well? And, you know, in in a data-informed way. And I think that's what's really exciting me, John, is I think once you've turned that switch, you never turn back. No, I agree with that. It's it's amazing, isn't it? The, the application of that in the sense of, you know, I suppose people before haven't really realised how finite the resources, the very sacred resources we have within healthcare are, that when you get a wave, as a wave as we've seen, and how data has managed to sort of keep 
know, the pressure, it could have been a lot worse if we didn't have those insights. That, you know, I totally can go what you're saying about, you can never go back now. I think we just need to apply it. And following on from that, my next question was, you know, as we've seen some amazing innovation happening, what do you think we can take out of the COVID crisis and the application of data analytics to make world-class innovation more living and breathing going forward? How would we, how would we do that? So, so, and actually, look, I'm a data geek, so maybe there's two things yeah. that's worth highlighting, and I'll come back to the data one maybe second around that kind of explosion of data and how we've done that. But the first one maybe for me is that um, ability for rapid innovation to try things and be, even in a healthcare setting, arguably especially in healthcare, be willing to yeah. try things that might fail. And I think yeah. it's been unbelievably impressive how quickly we have stood up clinical trials, how we have tested new policy, how we have, like, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm sure the UK is the same. I, I've been looking at the past of some of the length of stay data and some of the discharge planning data, the pathways related to COVID hospital admissions and the way that the healthcare sector, particularly, I suppose, hospital mm -hmm. working with community care, has found new pathways to get people with COVID out of hospital more quickly. Um, new treatments that, and variations on how to actually just that. Like, like, it's unbelievable. It's wonderful. I mean, you, you actually, are, again, I see the world through data. You can see hundreds of examples of innovation and actually innovation where we're stealing wonderfully, you know, the old Oscar Wilde quote, talent borrows, genius steals, you know, that, that actually you, we have heard that, by the way, they're trying this in France, let's bring that over and try that here. And, and I think there's been so many just fascinating and wonderful examples of how we have transformed the, the and actually vaccines aside, how we've transformed the treatment of COVID in an unbelievably short time due to hundreds, thousands you know, of very clever people looking, sharing, innovating, and, and, and we have a totally transformed pathway as a result in an incredibly short time. The other one for me, and it's, again, you sometimes say these things in, in presentations and you you only half believe them and then you see it come to life, is, is that explosion of data. And I suppose I was doing a lot of work. Ireland's a massive manufacturer of life, of drugs, of life sciences, um, particularly biopharma, which has additional complications to it. And if you think of the level of data that's created during the manufacturing process and deviations that are acceptable in some countries and not in others, and so having to work that through, to then, let's face it, all the vials go on a go on a bunch of pizza boxes and then the pizza boxes travel around the world and there's RFID or equivalent tags on each of those. So you've got wonderful supply chain information. You've then got, it arrives at a hospital or a, um, I was actually down next to Glasgow airport today where I saw there was a, you know, in the centre of patients, there's a vaccination centre and there are different pathways. And then you've got different patients as well, different patient cohorts, as we better understand and further separate out patient cohorts into smaller and smaller groups. And then you've got the outcome. And I think it's been wonderful how quickly we've been able to try and bring as much of that data together to actually learn and test and evolve to what is the best pathway and outcome for different patients. And you do think with so many of the cell and gene therapies that are coming through, you know, yeah. some of these some of these um, treatments and um, interventions are just going to be fundamentally different and, you know, are still in relatively early days. I think they're proven, but they're still in relatively early days. That ability to grab so much of that data to give each individual you know, the best possible treatment for them. I think that's the other bit for me. And 
And actually, by definition, that requires... It's interesting. It requires life sciences to have a much more involved role in the end-to-end yeah. outcome. It also requires life sciences and healthcare to work together in a far, far more collaborative manner. Let's be honest, if you're making, yeah. as Ireland also makes whatever it is, how many billion Viagra pills, yeah. they couldn't tell you which patient got what. And I think yeah. that's the mindset of as we come into these newer sort of cell and gene type therapies, that need for a much, much more coordinated and orchestrated um, end-to-end pathway from from t- you know taking the vials to everything and at every stage to the to final treatment. I think that's really exciting from a data perspective, John. And I, I think so many of the principles that we've learned through COVID are now going to be applied to business as usual and these new treatments as they transform our health systems like once again. So that's an explosion of data and, and moving into that personalization is now kind of truly probably a reality, isn't it? Yeah, yeah totally. And like I was saying, like he, he, like this one, and I think this is a thing that in life sciences, there is so much data from the labs and the limb system and the manufacturing mes system and actually the supply chain kind of ERP, you know, um, and they they haven't really, they, they've triangulated, triangulated that data when they submit it to regulators as required, rather than that innovative approach of, right, we need to triangulate this data on a daily, hourly basis to make sure that every single insight. Now, as you say that, it also needs the regulator to think differently as well about, well, we can't paralyze ourselves that we can never do any health treatments. So what does our, if we're going to be in an agile point for healthcare and for life sciences and for treatment, what does that mean from an, an agile regulator? And, and I, I won't pretend I'm as enough of an expert and a regulator to to come up with that. But as, as somebody who is a data geek, the ability to triangulate all of the data we've talked about and think about what's the best treatment for this patient in front of us, that's wonderfully exciting. Do you know, it really is it's exciting. Yeah. I agree. Fascinating. And and going on from that, you know, if you think about that explosion in data and that, for healthcare in the next, say, five to 10 years, how do you see, I suppose, data analytics sort of supporting that journey? What do you think healthcare is going to be like in the next sort of five to 10 years? And, and where do you see, I suppose, data analytics changing? Yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so I think, and uh, look, um, so in some ways there is going to be that explosion of data. Um, and actually the other side yeah. of that is research. It was interesting. Yeah. I, I did some work with a, an international hospital and the chief oncologist brought in his training, his, um, the research he'd got. And he said, Paul, this is my weekend reading of the oncology research that's been published in the last you know, month and a half. I, I need you to help me find the best paragraph per patient. And so really thinking about that, your, your point as well about the sort of personalised medicine and the shift um, more to me taking more direct responsibility for my data as well and me being a more actively involved in um, in actually my treatment and my decisions I think is really important as well. 
Um, and I think, look, John, I know we, we know we've talked about this for ages. There used to be a buzzer, didn't you? That you weren't allowed to talk about DNA in healthcare because we all get bored about that. Look, but that, but that's coming back as well. It has to come back as we start to understand the genetic relationship with, you know, we we realise patients are all unique, and we need to understand as much as we can that cohort of one and the implications for it. Um, I suppose the other side of that as well, and I and I did some work previously mm-hmm. with somebody who who was heavily involved in the Mayo Clinic, and the Mayo Clinic at the time were doing interesting work about peers. You know, the, re- the, the harsh reality is, you know, healthcare professionals are, especially with younger people, are not always their first source of knowledge, their first source of information. And so how do you enable, and, I, and again, I won't even pretend I know the answer, but, but what does peer knowledge mean when you're trying to convince, and actually let's be practical about it, as we're now going to have to convince a bunch of 20-year-olds to go and get a vaccine. Um, the best person to convince them is another 20-year-old. So how do you enable that kind of turning healthcare and, and turning some of those sort of traditionally more authoritative relationships that we've had on their head. And and again, it's a point, John, when you realise you're in your late 40s and you're not the right person to be designing that sometimes either. Um, but, but I think that's absolutely coming. And I can see with my own children that they they approach things in a different way than I did and, and just sort of thinking about what that means. Um, cell and gene therapy and, and the ability to to fix treatment, to fix conditions that we just weren't able to do as well. I think that's fascinating. I think also the other bit for me, and I think as we were talking before, Mm -hmm. what I think as well we're increasingly seeing is not analytics as that once every six months, once every year, once every whatever. And I think the example I gave you before was a hospital we worked with before that had 51 versions of a hip replacement. And they were all different because of clinical pathway decisions but nobody had ever actually compared them. That ability and the one that actually turned out to be the best pathway was also the cheapest pathway and wow. nobody had actually looked at it that way. I, I think that will just become more and more business as usual. Um, my wife, God bless her, is um, is now working as a in a jewellery company that management consultants set up and she loves slagging us off in her job. But she, but she gets data every... So she does QA on jewellery and she gets... She knows that half past 11 is her most likely time to fail just before she goes for lunch. And, and you know that what they've done is they have sought to build those insights that data can give you into her daily job. And I think the more we can do to enable, you know, clinicians supported by AI to be able to make those, you know, millions of little tweaks to improve decisions will really help as well. So hugely exciting time, loads going on. Um... You know, I think we're only at the start of this journey, and I'm I'm very excited yeah. for what happens next. You know, I agree. I, I think it's an exciting future ahead of us, and, and you know, for for us all to shape. And I, I, thanks for Paul for some really fascinating insights. Thanks for sharing those with us. I think you know, really great to hear about you know the importance of your grounding at the beginning when you started off your role of being involved in consultancy. But that that I think what I found was really interesting as well is that translator role, that bridging thing, being able to speak West Ham and Star Trek, as you mentioned. You can't underplay the importance of that and the grounding, which is really good. And then moving into what you mentioned as well with data analytics as well, that if we are sharing our insights, we've got to be aware that obviously we're speaking to clinicians, it needs to be evidence-based and that's here to stay, which is is the way it should be as well. But, you know, 
also sharing with us, I think, you know, learning from other countries. I think you mentioned as well, wasn't it? Different countries learning from the sort of SARS outbreaks as well. So I think there's probably some reflection after COVID we could possibly do with other countries. I think, you know, if this does happen again, how do we how do we learn from theirs as well? But I really like the, the piece about innovation and, you know, pushing for trying for things that might fail and don't, you know, if, even if you do fail, it's the learning that's the, the key part and important piece to, to bring that forward as well. But also, I think you mentioned as well about you know personalised care. But we're going to see more collaboration between industry and that supply chain with with life sciences is absolutely fundamental. I think for future. And then you mentioned as well at the end, wasn't it the, the next sort of five to ten years and the importance of kind of personalisation. I love the idea of the cohort of one, and I think we're going to see more of that. And you know, our, our, our kids are a, a proof of that. But no, fascinating, fascinating insights. We'd love to get you back on again. But finally. Paul, outside of your, your passion for for, for making you know, complex analysis uh, easy to understand, which is, is is a skill in itself, what do you do outside to relax? <laughs> so I get three, I get three teenage kids. But um, yeah. actually, yeah. I, it was funny when I hit forty. I realised the most fun I've ever had is when I was a teenager. So I I, I read comics. I listen right. to bad nineties bands, and I support passionately <laughs> Glasgow Celtic <laughs> Football Club. Um, and actually, I. I provide them a wee bit. I've had a few sessions with them recently as they think about data analytics and how they can use that to improve their um, player recruitment. So, yeah, as I said, <laughs> I, I, in my 30s, I tried to listen, to, in my 20s, I tried to listen to complex um, music and jazz and read difficult books. I've actually went back to, I'm far happier reading a Batman comic, to be honest with you, so that's what I do. Fantastic. Brilliant. Keeps the, sort of that yin and yang balance, I think. In place, exactly. Right. And Paul, finally, how can people follow you on Twitter and, and LinkedIn? Do you have a Twitter handle as such? I, I do, but to be honest with you, my Twitter handle is mostly with Glasgow Celtic Football Club. So <laughs> so please feel free to follow on that basis. But but yeah, I'm Paul Pierotti on Twitter, on um, LinkedIn. And there aren't many Paul Pierottis, um, yeah. P-I-E-R-O-T-T-I. So you can find me easy enough on LinkedIn. I'm, like I said, if you're interested in silly arguments about Scottish football, they're more than happy you follow me on Twitter as well. But I'm um, probably LinkedIn's probably easier. Brilliant. Oh, thanks for, for joining us today. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you uh, back again on, on FICA. But thank you all. Excellent. Thanks again for the opportunity, John. Lovely talking to you. So I'd like to thank our speaker for joining us today and for everybody else tuning in to this podcast. Uh, look forward to seeing you in the future. <laughs>